show me. Oh, wow. That looks sick. <laughs> Does it fit you okay? Yeah, this is three XL. Ah, show me the writing. Does it go all the way down to the bottom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, uh, move the mic out of the way. Yeah. Ah, sick. Fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, great. The um, the funny nice thing one. is, the uh, package still says has that Google admin sticker on it for some reason. That's weird, isn't it? I'm gonna. I think I I uploaded that because it was the only asset I had at the time when I set it up. <laughs> when you when you order merch, Ed, like the packaging has literally a little logo and it says Google admin on it. Really? Yeah, it is. I've got to take a photo of it. It's funny. Anyway, Ed, you'll get one of these beautiful mugs. I'll send oh. one out to you. So. It's- Oh, that's lovely. Just... I'll tell you what, Christian would be well impressed. You know, my uh, business partner. Okay. So, so into merch. All right, Eddie. Um, so a bit of an introduction, I think, is uh, is due. Um, so tell us all about your, your, yourself, your business, your your career, and where you're at in the moment. All That'd right. Great. So, uh, so I'm Ed, and um, uh, about two years ago, uh started a startup called data cubed mm-hmm. um with a couple of other people i'm based here in auckland in new zealand yep. uh my other founder is based in uh, wellington in new zealand and then the third founder is uh based in the uk and um so here we specifically do the new zealand australia market mm-hmm. as a data company yep and uh but with the rest of uh, the group, we've got DataCube UK, DataCube Europe, and then us, DataCube Asia Pacific, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, specifically, we deal with New Zealand and Australia at the moment. Um, it's interesting, you know, for people on the podcast, we were talking in the intro about uh, some data things going on at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And we kind of do a modular thing nigel where mm-hmm. uh i would say you know because in data it's always hard when people go what do you do yeah um, yep. and so we have like this uh, modular approach we generally when we first meet someone we'll come in and we'll do a data maturity score with them mm-hmm. and that is along the lines of you know what are you looking like on governance what are you looking like on data protection, um, what are you looking like on data security, you know, those sorts of things. Yep. Uh, people find that very useful, and we are then able to kind of uh, benchmark them and help them to see where they are, you know, in the scale. Mm-hmm. And I have to be honest with you, most companies, you know, are trying to get into this and do better and, yep. uh, you know, get into a, a data-led world. Uh, mm-hmm. but most of them are probably low on the scale at the moment. Yep. Uh, even the ones that actually think that they're good. Uh, yeah. You know, once we've done one of our assessments, I think they're often quite surprised, you know, to find that they didn't score as highly as they thought they would. Yeah. Um, and then generally leading from that, we go into like a sort of data discovery module, mm-hmm. which again, sounds simplistic, doesn't it? But it's literally like, you know, where's your data? Uh, because we find in companies, small, medium, and large, yep. that they think they know where their data is, but they don't necessarily know. And <laughs> um, 
they think that they know what the key data is and what's driving the company and what's, you know, the key performance indicators. Yep. And again, often, seriously, we'll have people think that, you know, oh, yeah, that stuff's in the data warehouse. You know, we know all about that. Yeah, we just Actually, pull the data out. It just appears for us. Mary's spreadsheet, you know, <laughs> where she's cobbling together stuff from kind of 16 different branches, you yep. know, and, and actually hers is the key piece of information. But, mm -hmm. you know, they think it's it's elsewhere. Yep. Um, so in and, terms of... So, oh, um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump in as, yeah, as we go. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, cause I'm in data, I'm super interested in data. Um, and, um, I, I really enjoy working with products like Tableau. Um, mm -hmm. and I find it really easy to visualize, um, the data that, you know, that, that gets, um, produced by a particular department. So, you know, in, in my career, um, heading up e-commerce, um, you de you know, it, it generates a lot of, a lot of data, mm. you know, uh, customer interactions, business interactions, internal, external, um, you know, point of sale systems and, um, warehousing systems. So there's all these disparate systems that are generating really interesting data. And I find that, you know, you can put them together or one off, visualize it really well, but it's very hard to, as you say, find Mary's spreadsheet again when she, when she updates it. Um, you know, she might only update it on a Wednesday, but if she's not in on a Wednesday, yeah. it's done on a Friday. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're running the report on a Wednesday. You don't know she's not there on a Wednesday. <laughs> and then next minute, you, all your numbers are wrong. Um, similar things in, you know, sort of previous, previous lives for me. What are you finding uh, when you're dealing with um, these businesses? And do you find that when you come in, as you say, their, their scorecard isn't as good as what, they're expecting to get an A and you come in and it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a B or a B plus. Um, yeah. Is there much of a jump between a, a B say a B or a B plus to a, to an A in your mind, like for, for a business, is it generally the size of the business or is it, is it that, or is what that a D look like? No, it's not. The... Yeah. What's a D? I mean, is a D like you've been hacked and the, and the data's on the dark web? <laughs> Pretty much. No, a D is literally, you know, we can't, kind of find any evidence that you know any of these criteria are being matched mm -hmm. so you know I, I mean i could go on and on guys as you know but like some examples are um you know you've got a sql server uh you've claimed that it's okay we've patched it it's got all the latest security patches applied yep uh but you haven't rebooted it in a year so mm -hmm. there's no point in applying the patches in the first place Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it's kind of it's that whole governance state things. Uh, if we bring it into, you know, breaches that are constantly going on at the moment. I mean, we read yes, about them, every week there's a new one. The big thing with Latitude Financial Services mm -hmm. was that. And, you know, I'm angry about this personally. Yeah. Is that the data should not have been there in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, no data retention policies, you know, no cleaning out of the systems. And so in actual fact, people like myself who had closed an account 10 years ago. Like me, I think it was, yeah. actually transacted with them 15 years ago. Mm. You know, my personal details, date of birth, address, driver license, etc. So, yeah, things things like that. We also find um, 
Nigel and Ende knows this as well, you know, from work we've done in the past, that uh, people are very good at saying, you know, I got a security company in and they've secured the network and our firewalls and, you know, kind of they've done this security assessment, etc. But again, we often find that what's actually left is the data. And it's almost you're educating people to have a reverse stance on it and to go, mm. look, just assume that you're going to be broken into. Now, let's try and make this data pretty much useless mm -hmm. to whoever has lifted it. You know, mm -hmm. attack vectors shouldn't be allowed to get to data that is in plain text. Often the lack of data governance itself says, well, there's kind of a lack of a, a data strategy yeah. because we, we can help with that and often assist in re-architecting something that they already have. We often go in and we we show people what a modern data platform looks like and what mm -hmm. a customer data platform looks like. Mm -hmm. yep. Or in other cases, there's a very, very large company that we work with in Australia. They brought us in because they had a, a an excellent cloud platform fit for purpose at the time when it went in mm -hmm. but technology and concepts had moved along yep. and it wasn't being either a run as efficiently as it could be anymore so you know it was costing a lot of money and b it wasn't as modular and modern as it could be mm. and i often i have this conversation with people where i point out to them almost here is the amount of money that you are spending fighting your data platform instead of an amount of money that you are spending to get value out the end of the data platform. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, making being able to make decisions, sort of informed decisions on the data versus trying to maintain it. Yeah. Spending money at the other end is super important. Actually, it's funny you say that because it's in real world, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? I mean, people or businesses put these systems in. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it, well, Endo and I've seen it before because we've worked together, they put them in and then they realize, well, the problem they were trying to solve back when that was put in no longer exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the tool is no longer required kind of thing. And then now it's the business has moved on. It's trying to solve different problems and try and solve, it's trying to solve different, you know, um, different kind of uh, nuances around the data that it has um, and it just can't do it anymore. Like yeah. it just can't string the things together that it needs to because it just doesn't have the structure. Well, yeah. As you say, the modularity of, of these systems is super important. And well, this is... the landscape has changed, you know. So mm -hmm. in our time, you had, you know, a data lake and a data warehouse. Now with, you know, the kind of concept of a lake house there's you know there's no distinction really mm. um there's no specific use case for saying well i either have to build you know a data warehouse or set of data warehouses or i just want to go mining so i want a data lake um yep. you know there's modern um modular systems that we use these days you know things like databricks and so on where in actual fact the lake house concept actually works well for any of those use cases. Yeah, it's interesting, oh. isn't it? And I think the other thing I, I noticed while using Tableau myself and doing that discovery on the data that, I, you know, the, the department that, that I was running at the time was, was generating was the, um, 
often visualizing the data in a way that you can make make decisions quickly um, is is different in you know in terms of what you what you think you need um, to see versus what you actually need to see and then the gap between what you think you need and what you actually need starts yeah. to um, close and I think that happens because a lot of um, a lot of people generally speaking are more visual learners than what yeah. they are auditory or kinostatic or you know there's different types of learning profiles right yeah and I think um, being a visual learner you know for for us as human beings is it's a lot easier to visualize uh and one thing i also found was it was was hard to make things was easy to make things complicated yeah. the sixty thousand reports and it was hard to make them simple yeah and i mean this is a philosophy that goes back i mean to the early days of apple actually but but you know making things ux's ui's reports whatever it is making them simple the simpler the better and if you can make exactly the same decisions on one or two pieces of useful information versus thousands of useful pieces of information you're able to make um those decisions a lot quicker yeah. um and be more nimble and cool. i worked a lot on that concept um to know where we you know for example to to drive marketing decisions uh stock and inventory decisions um you know, it was funny. We had buyers at the time. I, I remember this clearly. We had thousands of people looking for um, iPhones, but we didn't yeah. have any stock of iPhones. And yeah. I'm like, well, it's costing us $20 to acquire a customer. If we bought an iPhone from somewhere else and sold it at a loss, how much is that loss? Less or equal to $20? Well, then let's try and get some iPhones and sell them at a at a net cost or a net profit of zero but in actual fact you've just gained a customer that you wouldn't have before yeah and just to have simple concepts like that and to be able to visualize the data yeah um and that's a really good example yeah um you know we uh, we had a similar set we analyzed data as well nigel and um uh we were helping a large insurance company out and um the without boring you to death with the details the the analysis though basically was that um the lower cost customer to get on board so like you know in your example say the mm -hmm. 10 20 per cost customer to get on board um was maybe potentially staying much longer with the insurance company and you know a better uh, profit for them at the end of the day you know a better revenue earner Mm -hmm. And uh, they were doing these kind of marketing initiatives, you know, and offering to do this and that and the other, you know, for people like me or if you had a car or two cars or, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is that uh, on the analysis, they found out that the customers that, in effect, they were giving more to. So they were maybe coming in at what kind of? hundred dollar per acquisition you know hundred and ten dollars per acquisition something mm -hmm. like that um they would churn back out of the system again about a year later mm -hmm. because they'd they'd take the deal they'd come into the system but then you know as soon as the deal was over they'd churn back out and go looking for another deal from someone else yeah super interesting 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, um, when you're talking about those types of acquisition costs. Mm. Yep. Sorry, yeah. I just have a question, right? Like um, me being, I guess, the, the spanner guy in the back, um, shoveling data to various users. Um, we love spanner guys in the yeah. back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're working in the steam room. Just because you have access to Tableau and Power BI, does that make you an analyst? Because at the moment, you know, we, we do things like, um, you know, give them access to the platforms, opening up uh, access to the database system so they can do these massive pools of data. Then I've got to worry about, you know, where the data is going, uh, data encryption at rest in transit, etc. But I mean, is it if you give everybody all the full data sets, can they actually figure it out? Or uh, is like, how do you sort of say, well, this is the only data set you should have access to versus here you go you're the analyst, do whatever you want. And is everybody turning into analysts now? No, uh, I mean, you, you're spot on, Andy, right? And that that is another fallacy that somehow, oh, it's okay, look, Microsoft have launched this cool Power BI and, you know, we get it free and it's awesome, you know, et cetera. And, of course, we all know you don't because if you want to do something meaningful with it, you then suddenly have to pay for the Power BI Pro licensing. But, look, all of that aside... <clears throat> It is, you're right, there's this modern notion almost to pick up on Nigel's point about, oh, look, you know, this is dead easy. It's just like an Apple iPhone. You still need to understand your data. You still need to understand your company. And I think that's, I'd like to think that's what we bring to the table is that, you know, we work with people really to kind of work out with them what what's meaningful to you, you know, what's meaningful that can change the direction of this company, add value, you know, change the way that you you work, whatever. Make decisions. Um, And then we'll work on trying to construct something for you. Now, as I said, unlike a report, you can still go drilling and you can see why, you know, that uh, in Nigel's terms, you know, why the lovely looking pie graph looks like that. You know, so you can go down behind the surface and look at the figures and get an understanding of, hmm, what's, you know, that looks odd. What's changed that? Why, why you know, is that coming up as a big red quarter of the pie chart, you know? Um, but, but no, as you've rightly pointed out, uh, you can't just kind of go to somebody, hey, here's Tableau, here's Power BI, knock yourself out. Mm. Um, you know, connect to this data lake and have a merry old time mm. uh, because that, yeah, it's push- almost like the self-service analytics concept. You know, the the Tableau tried to push a while, and then they realised fa- fairly early. Not that they tried to push, but they were introducing self-service analytics. Oh, just connect to the data lake, and here's your, you know, here's all the the standard reports. But hey, you might want to create something beautiful for your department. And then they realised, oh shit, that's creating um analytical anarchy i think they called it was their term um and it was interesting because in that same (laughs) in that same in that same um uh seminar that they were doing they they also um did describe that point of understanding the data and understanding the 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 caveats let's just say behind each one of your data points you might bring into a report and knowing that your analyzing things in 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 the right way but i mean i just on that point um and the that which is a really good one about um not creating analytical anarchy and creating um an environment which gives i suppose people in you know sitting in front of 
Power BI or Tableau, whichever whichever tool it is, um, you know they they quickly become empowered when they see how easy it is to generate really interesting things. Yeah, and they can get caught up in this. Um, I think you know they create tend to create. Um, you know, I, I sort of describe them as kind of like it's just like shrapnel you know, um, from, from reports and, and they tried to then make decisions on that. And, and these, these reports, which is essentially just rubbish. They're just shrapnel from what was the original report or, or so on. Um, another brilliant term. I said, I'm stealing yours, but we all know the old one, which is true analysis paralysis. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because they literally get caught in a loop. Yeah. I mean, I, I countless numbers of a number of times. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. I'd be working on a report in Tableau for a day and you all of a sudden forget what you're actually doing. <laughs> yes. You know, it's so funny, right? You're like, actually, what was we I all, doing? I was have. starting off looking at, you know, the, the div- delivery in full on time reports from Australia Post, for example, for all of my e-commerce customers to, to now all of a sudden I'm looking at my like overcharges on, you know, delivery costs for a certain su- suburb because somehow it's, you know, strung the data together and I never had that report before. Yeah. And then, so you you end up creating all this shrapnel, but some of it's really there's nuggets in there. You know, there's golden nuggets in there. There's good good stuff that you can actually get out of it. And I think um, having time to do this form of self discovery when you do get access to you know a new system if it's been put in um, by yourself and your company. And do you find that you sit there and you you tend to try to rein a lot of that in and say, you know, because I know things like Tableau have and Enday and I have looked at this. There's Tableau Online. There's different, different, you know, different versions. Um, access levels and permissions can become this gigantic task yeah. in itself. Just making sure that the right people have access to the right data. And I think we can touch on this uh, the um, point later on. I think, but you know, having third parties coming in and helping you with that data and helping you with that discovery now that you guys have sort of cleaned up the data. You've done all your ETL processes. You've got your business policies in place. The data is nice and clean. Everybody understands it. Um, You know, do you, yeah, do you find that, um, you know, you have to sort of sit down and once you've finished the project and you've handed it over, do you say, right, guys, these are the, let's call it those sort of like the rules of engagement, you know, like <laughs> before you start shooting people, can you um, just take a moment to understand, you know, these are the parameters that you work within in how does your, yeah. your company normally handle, you know, those situations? Yeah. Look, we, we work through, I mean, part of that is working through with them what, you know, the operating model is. Mm-hmm. It goes again, back to what Ende said, you know, it, it depends not in small companies, obviously, but you know, you might have, um, data engineers, uh, data administrators, you know, like what we would have called database administrators, mm-hmm. um, uh, dashboard, you know, visualization people, etc., etc. So part of it is also, we're always honest and upfront with everyone, right? You know, one of the reasons we started it was because we kind of got fed up working in places where, you know, less than the truth was being told to us, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so no, we're, we're very clear about, you know, this, this is the kind of operating model that you would need 
to run this and therefore here's the kind of people that you would need mm. um and again one recent one i kept thinking of it now again another australian one is a you know the gap analysis so basically we believe that actually you've got uh, people in your team that are capable of these particular roles uh, but we think you're a bit short here. You know, you've got no one who can like do the data modeling for you or something like that. Um, and so we will highlight things like that and then also um, help them with, uh, because I'm not selling you everything. We don't do everything. I said in many respects, you could still argue we are the data engineers, the data plumbers. And so mm -hmm. when it comes to some of these other areas that they want to cover um we will partner up with companies like yourself nigel you know and say that actually that's where the skills gap can be filled you know that this isn't necessarily something where you should be employing people to do it anyway mm -hmm. because some of them are kind of um not one-off jobs but you know they're they're their jobs that you do, then effectively, you know, you probably leave them for about four, five, maybe six months before you come back to do some adjustments or some changes or whatever, you know, especially <laughs> things like data modeling work, right? Yeah. Um, so, no, that's that's them where we uh, help them with either we do believe that you've got the skills yourself or that mm -hmm. you can, you know, retrain people or whatever, or... Uh, here are partners that we work with that we think can help you fill that gap. Oh, very good. It's funny um, you should say that because I've I've been working, and this is probably on the topic of just uh, partnering up or, or contracting or going out, like knowing your weakness and your limitations. Um, I've been in a few, quite a few organizations, and I think it varies wildly. Like. Um, I've been in, or currently working with some organization now where they're, they're more than happy to outsource. They understand we're understaffed. We're not yep. skilled for it. Let's not try and take this on ourselves. We've got plenty of good resources out there. You partner up with a good MSA, whoever, or MSP who can provide you those those contacts and, and find the good people in the industry. Um, and then, you know, the, the star contrast, you find people who just clammed up. They've got the same guy that's been working there since 1985. And they're trying to shoehorn all this modern type work into him. And he's yeah. just failing and they don't, they don't actually recognize it because they don't even know if he's doing a good job or not. Yeah. I think as well, uh, yeah. one thing I will point out to sort of switch it on its head slightly is that sometimes we are called in to, if you like, assist with what I refer to as a hostage situation. <laughs> and it's the classic, you know, like, when we were back to that original story, you know, the guy writing the scripts himself and, you know, don't worry, leave it to me. And I'm the only person who knows how SSRS runs, you know, report services. Uh, I'm the only person who can write SQL code, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We, we often get called in to help both improve the company and, you know, take them in a new uh, direction, a new strategic direction, you know, a new roadmap. Um, but often they themselves, before even getting in touch with us, have realized that they're kind of being held hostage by a couple of individuals or maybe, you know, if you're smaller, a single individual. 
it's the single point of failure, you know, that, that again, you're carrying risk as a company because uh, back to where we originally started this podcast, Nigel, you know, some companies are very good at realizing where they carry the risk and others aren't uh, yep. and can't actually necessarily see it. Yep. Um, and again, you know, big companies, big brand name companies, uh, we all know the case about banks, you know, banks running mm. legacy COBOL systems where, you know, the team were all 70 years old because, you know, they'd not migrated to anything else and nobody could find anyone who knew the code anymore. You know? Oh, God, yeah. Don't we know about that, in they? <laughs> um, okay, so one of the things I, I remember um, just around around the data piece um is understanding the difference between reporting and analytics. You know, reporting is, you know, you, you report on things for the sake of reporting, but then you have analytics for the sake of, um, you know, understanding what's happening, I suppose, at more real time, you know? Yeah. What's yeah. your, what's your thoughts around that? I mean, cause I usually dealt with analytics rather than reporting. That reporting is a point in time mm. of something that has essentially happened. Mm. And analytics is I have a question and I would like to know what the answer is. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel that, you know, tools like Tableau and Power BI are more analytical tools than they are actually about answering questions than rather than doing reporting? Because I, I found I, I used Tableau to build analytics Mm. And to, you know, in, and the online version obviously gives you sort of like a, uh, a sort of a semi AI tool and we'll get onto AI in a minute, I think, but, um, you know, you could say, okay, what was the sales result for Friday, you know, the 11th of August and yeah. bang, and it gives you the, gives you the results, but you know, you couldn't really say to it, show me a visualization of all of my customers from postcode 2000. Yeah, it wouldn't no, be able to, to create that report on the fly, generate, you know, what you wanted to see. I feel my, my general feeling is and using um, Tableau for, for many, many years, I feel that it's going to get to a point where you just ask something to either Tableau or whatever system it is that has access to the data. And all of the caveats and all of the um, data that has been, you know, in terms of governance has, has been presented in a way that it understands this AI or whatever it is understands, it's just going to be able to show you what you want to see. So the, the, the thousands and thousands of hours that goes into generating these useless reports, as you said, that 60,000 reports, which only, you know, 60 were being used those situations won't happen anymore. It'll just be, you know, somebody sitting there going, you know, the CFO saying, okay, show me, you know, um, all of my net new customers for the last seven days well, and where just, they're from and how much they've spent and bang, it just appears. I just might bring us back into the cybersecurity realm, right? So obviously it's fresh a topic for me. In terms of data, and we, we talked about the difference between uh, reporting and analysis, right? Um, I'm working now, I've stood up a few SIEM solutions now. It's security, you know, monitoring, monitors events and picks up um, anomalies. Um, 
so at the moment the tools i've seen have a lot of nice stuff out of the box it knows what to look for if there's an attack or an attempt to evade um you know evade um being detect detected across your systems so i don't know if anyone's um familiar with seem right security information event management or monitoring tool so uh, it gets all your data sources, it correlates it all together, and then it's able to detect if something funky is going on, if it's related to something else on another system. Um, but what I found is with the tools I've been looking, there is a lot of well-defined, um, I guess, signals that it's looking for. But also there's a lot of things that a person like, you know, someone in my position where I actually have to think about now knowing now what it's looking for, ways to get around it. Um, you know, I'd have, how would I counter it? Um, so for me, is a bit of degree of, um, yeah, there's cut and dry reports. AI could probably do it based on think parameters it's learned or what we've defined. Mm. But honestly, there's still, for me, there's going to be instances where like I'm working on both sides, you know, a red team and blue team is trying to figure out, well, you know, I know that a team would be looking for something like this. What's something really mundane that I can push traffic or, or, or um, hide my activity that a seam normally wouldn't be able to detect. Cause like, you know, cause you're extracting point. data out of a system essentially and storing it somewhere potentially. Correct. So you're talking um, about a report, which is a point in time. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about basic operations, yeah. Okay. I'm using X amount of disk space a month. Looks normal. Yeah. Anomaly would be fuck. you use 80 gigs more than what you normally use. That's an anomaly. It shows up on a report. AI can do it. You know, I mm. mean, all the system would normally detection do it now. But how do you how do you know um, that um, maybe it's incrementally growing, but the data there's one extra data source that it doesn't normally get into. Like I, I guess the built-in tools could probably pick that as anomaly, but it's a constant battle for me. There was a there was a system that I saw a few years ago called Black Lotus, I think, um, and it had it, it had an AI machine learning. Um, proprietary thing built into it and you know I'm, I'm not a cyber security and i'm not going to start throwing buzzwords around but um from what i saw from a from a just a you know sort of high level point of view i thought it looked pretty cool and mm -hmm. and this was in singapore um and the one of the things i showed was for payment systems it's very useful because the payment systems you know generally speaking there's you know transactions are a certain packet size and all this kind of stuff and then as soon as you have very large transactions going on the the packet sizes of the information coming from different systems is different sizes and it starts to segment these things and and it was actually incredible how it did it but the end result was it's this 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 concept as i mentioned before it's hard to it's easy to make things complicated it's hard to make them simple was just one simple report on a screen that basically showed a threat meter and that was it. Mm. And the cybersecurity guys were all sitting around sort of clapping and going, wow, that's awesome. And it was just this one little needle, you know, mm -hmm. just going up and down showing what's going on in their system. Um, and obviously they all had propellers kind of spinning and, <laughs> you know, kind of stuff going on. Um, but they were saying that they were using this, this, this concept for, for large, um, banking systems where as Eddie was saying these co COBOL systems and so on it's sometimes they don't these COBOL systems they're rock solid they, but they don't like talking to anything else they don't like consuming mm -hmm. anything outside of themselves right. as systems so um, this is why they're all sitting around cheering and stuff but that's exactly the point they were raising in that conference and there's like how from a cyber security point of view how do I see what is normal how do I see what is 
semi-abnormal just to reduce the amount of false positives they're getting and have to have to investigate because otherwise you have huge teams looking at just red herrings all the time you know yeah, how do you how do you define an anomaly right like yeah you know, yeah and the very definition of anomaly you know what is it and how does it become that when you've got ai doing similar things as humans um essentially oh, yeah, well, but, yeah yeah, yeah. that's super, needs- super super interesting and yeah good point this is why ai needs massive amounts of data mm. so yeah. you know don't forget what whatever anything that we talk about at all relating to ai it always needs huge amounts of data um, to mm. to help with its training, and <clears throat> mm. you know the big thing at the moment, of course, is ChatGPT. You know, show me two years worth of data off systems that aren't being hacked, and everything's going okay. Mm. Right now that I've trained you on two years of what the normal world looks like, mm. tell me if you see anything out of that pattern yeah but this is the the very challenge right because you're looking at a point in time part backwards in time if the business has grown to a point where it no longer recognizes that the new data is naturally different because Mm -hmm. it's now looking at real-time data or data that is closer to real time you could get a lot of false positives on that because it's just now looking at different data sets um people yeah, yeah. So you, you, there's there's all these caveats that the the, the um, uh, machine learning models and stuff need to understand that the natural progression oh, yeah. and have normalization going on in their data sets and so yeah. on to make sure that they don't get you don't get these false positives. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's super, super interesting. Um, one one um, one thing I, I just wanted to mention just on the larger data volumes. One thing I, I noticed. Um, with these different types of systems is, you know, the, the, the ability for a very basic user, you know, a small business owner, for example, who might have normally um, spun up an Excel spreadsheet to analyze, you know, um, thousands of customers, potentially they might have a database or whatever. And the amount of raw compute power that that needs for you to, you know, to run Mm. macros or run you know run automations or run filters or running you know all of these things i've seen people in business try to do everything inside a spreadsheet uh, and google sheets and then realize two years later oh shit i should have just gone straight to you know google cloud and used BigQuery or something like that um one thing you know as a small business owner myself now i've realized is i can analyze huge amounts of data in tableau and all I need is a MacBook Air with an M2 processor and a little bit of memory, and it smashes millions of rows of of data, which normally would have crashed if I tried to use Excel. I mean, do you have you know do you have any thoughts uh, uh, around you know without the analysis paralysis coming in? Do you think that this is um, a good thing or a bad thing or, or like you know what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I, look, I. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's all, that's education, isn't it? It's like, mm. you know, again, you're back to what's what's my kind of risk scenarios. You know, what's what's the difference between running something on Google Cloud, AWS, whatever, versus some kind of, you know, nuclear power station of a laptop I've got, and and I'll just 
you know, I'll share mm. with you the reason why I'm smiling so much in this segment is that Andy knows that I am currently on the podcast with you guys on my M2 MacBook Pro, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, which is currently running the electricity grid for New Zealand while we're talking. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's um, amazing what small business owners try, try or even you know just generally like once you get you don't think you just do it you just start doing it once you yeah. can yeah and you realize you can you never stop that's, to think should you that's and i the, think that's probably my I mean, point that's exactly it Be yeah and, because and, I I, and so many times i've done it and then i've realized and i've put it back into excel and i've realized tableau is double counted rows or something or you know and, and it's just it's not unless you are a, a an analyst you know and you're looking at the data and you're going back to your business model and you're just you're reconciling things and making sure those numbers are correct mm. you can basically make some pretty bad decisions i mean yeah. have you got any stories around businesses making bad decisions on data maybe i mean that 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 might be interesting probably not name names <laughs> Yeah, let's yeah. not name any names. I don't want to get sued, or I don't want you to get sued, Eddie. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it is a you know a free country. You can't say what you want, but uh, uh, it's all in your opinion, of course. Um, but you know, then they've handed the data to someone, or done this, or such and such has had a breach, and you know, all the all the data's been stolen. We yeah, like the police. I think at the moment they've got a big issue. There was a, a laptop which was sold, and it had a spreadsheet of all the police officers' names, details, addresses, and they mentioned um, in the news they were saying that they were worried about the police had moved out of their homes that were on that spreadsheet because they're worried about something to do with paramilitary uh, attack in Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Police Service has managed to send a spreadsheet out with the name of every single serving police officer in the country and their address and all their details. Right. And yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe maybe it is this. Maybe, yeah, I saw it on the, yeah, so I caught the end of the story. Because yeah. I, I believe, you know, because I was catching up myself and they said that... Uh, you know, one of the um, uh, dissident army groups or something claimed that they now had that information. Um, and I literally, I was just, I, my mouth was hanging open because I was mm. going, you know, that literally, it, well, you just can't get your head around it. That's like any country going, oops, we just released every single police officer that works for us and where they live. I mean, it just screams something ain't right. You know, yeah. you know, it's that saying, it's just like the way to the truth is to ask the right questions. It's Socrates, you know. And I, do you remember there was that, um, oh, Ender, you're going to correct my facts on this. I know you're going to, this is, this is why I love I'll having you on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think of the ideas and you correct me. Um, no, the, 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 there was this phone there's a company who created these phones. I think it was a Turkish company and um, they had somehow distributed these between the banditos or one of the, one of the bikey clubs. Mm -hmm. And they were actually listening The Australian federal police were listening into all of their conversations on these phones. And they didn't realize that this, you know, the information was um, their, their, their voices were all being recorded and they, they obviously were tracking for a while and they cracked down. Now, 
this 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 data breach, I understood, as I understood it, was uh, what had to do with the Colombian cartels, the drug cartels, and everything. And somehow, it's just I feel like this is a bit of retribution now. Mm. Like whenever I hear the police, you know, because they're on our side, they're the good guys. They're trying to keep the drugs off the streets. You know, um, being exposed all of a sudden, it, and it just screams to me like I don't know enough of the story. But so basically, there was a um, there was a device sold by the um, law enforcement agencies that was made up uh, by product. I think it's called a nom or something like that. So basically, they mm. they created this product. I think it was Android based, and they they touted it and sold it to the criminals as a secure messaging app. And so oh, that's they, right. that's it. It. they yep. pretended to sell it. They said, oh, mm. you know, you can do your um, communications within your, your organization, your um, organized crime network, and we can't, you know, it's uncrackable or whatever. So after a while, they distributed lots of these units to everybody. And then lo and behold, <laughs> <laughs> it was already hacked. Yeah, it was already <laughs> pre-hacked off the shelf. Um, and I guess that's just a little bit of marketing and spin. And then, you know, people were snapping it up. Um I, I believe it was around more than 800 people nabbed or arrested in that sting. But that was, um, yeah, that was the one you're, you're probably referring to. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it was. I mean, I thought it was brilliant, to be honest. I mean, what a fantastic way of, you know, sort of getting in there and, and um, getting the data that you, you know, that they needed. Obviously, it has to be, you know, in court, there's, you know, you've got, there's so many rules you have to go by in order for you to present that information in court and has to be beyond reasonable doubt and everything else and so it was clearly um the framework of the data that was siphoning out of these phones was enough to appease a court of law i think they made him sign in with google first Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I was just going to circle back to the ba- uh, ba- um, bad data decisions. Uh, I mean, who could we, and we're going to name names here, who could forget the RoboDebt scheme? Oh, oh yeah. I, I, oh, you know, I actually didn't follow that. Um, Maybe we should yeah. go into that. Yeah, we look, did, I, mean, I mean, we heard about it over here as well. Um, and yeah. we were like, you know, how on earth was that thought that that was a great idea? Um. I believe, I'm looking at this is Wikipedia, so that, um, we're just quoting what I've seen on Wikipedia at this at this time, date, and time. So they they came up with this idea that they'll um, use data to go and have automated recovery schemes. So the systems would ring you and go, "Hey, you owe us money," um, and they've contacted 470,000 wrongly issued debts to be repaid in full. Um, and, the, and the biggest. The tragedy here is obviously there was a there's a there was a death because somebody had committed suicide because of the undue stress. Crap. And he wasn't even mm-hmm. apparently he didn't even, he wasn't supposed to be owing money on it. So people it, are fragile. Exactly. I mean, exactly that that's what they you know these government agencies they just don't understand what people go through. You know, mm-hmm. that's terrible. But yeah. it shows you it shows you this whole conundrum about data. Because data itself is gold now. Yeah, and, yeah, um, it's power, it's information. Like we discussed in this podcast, you can use it for good things, you can use it for bad things. That's why everybody's kicking off about AI, you know, and mm. ethical AI, because we know that any of these technologies that, uh, you know, we come up with can be used for good and can be used for nefarious activities as well. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I remember I, I followed that. I followed some of the hearings as well. And mm. I mean, it was just awful. You know, things yeah. like, uh, well, you know, the memo went to you for approval. Oh, well, I never saw the memo because I was on holiday for two weeks. Oh, God. Um, you know, but do you just let people loose with data? No, you don't. Mm. Because if you give people the wrong data, bad things mm. are going to happen. Yep, yep. Bad decisions made. Mm. One of the right. things we do as a company, I'll just highlight to you, is <clears throat> we decided this right at the beginning when we started. Uh, we never, ever, ever have anyone's data we always work with the customers and you know with their this systems and so on yep. but we never ever ever hold any data now there are other companies um you know as we know like analytics companies and that that actually do say look effectively give us your data we'll mine it for you mm. uh we'll find the gold in there and then you know you make some uh, some good wedge out of it and I'm not knocking that in this podcast either that's not mm. what that's about I'm just simply saying that we chose right at the beginning that we did not ever want to be holding any customers data yeah yep. is no, that no. and Dave from your point of view is that something like from the vetting process is that you know as a if I'm a if I'm a business owner and I say you know Eddie come come do some work with me and um and but but first of all, I want you to have a chat with Enday. Yeah, you know, is yeah, that we, something we, you would look at? This, this is totally I mean, be part of your vendor vetting process. We, 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 mm. I think we touched on it um, a couple of podcasts ago. I mean, you should just probably do do your due diligence, ask the questions. Like if if I was to engage with um, Eddie's group, and I'd say, you know, we're about to shift a whole bunch of um, database, um, shift the database over to. you. Mm -hmm. I'd be certainly, I mean, certainly the IT department would be asking, what's your data policy? What's your data handling policy? Um, what are your procedures in place to protect it? Where is it being stored? These are the questions that everybody should ask when you're handing stuff over. Like I, when I sort of, before I started into cyber, I was sort of looking at privacy laws, et cetera. And um, I think when I was going to go and collect, this is JB Hi-Fi, biggest retailer. Yeah. Um, they took a um, copy of my license. I think it's for a click and collect or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I went, okay. I, I personally don't care too much because I, I tend not to put myself out there too much. But I, at that point in time, it was fresh in my mind. I said, hey, what are you going to do with it? And and to credit, credit or JB Hi-Fi at the time, um, the staff member rattled off exactly what they were going to do. You know, we take a photocopy, we hand yours back, we hold it here. Once the transaction is mm. done, at the end of the day, it all gets shredded and put in a secure bin. They knew the process off the, off the top of their head. Oh, yeah. Either they've been asked or they've been trained. And it's very well. And I went, great. Both. So, great. Mm. We, we, don't, we don't put it anywhere else. It just goes straight. We just use it to verify and then it gets shredded. Mm. Perfect. That's what I wanted to hear. And so those are the sort of things you want to get from a company that you're going to deal with, especially if you're going to push data to them. You should probably ask that question in general if you're going to have some sort of interconnect agreement and stuff like that. You know, how do you how mm. do you guys handle stuff on your side? So absolutely yeah. part of the process. Yeah, I mean, with the, this day and age with APIs and everything, into you know, at one minute, as you're saying, you don't know where your data ends up. Sometimes, do, do do businesses know where their data physically ends up? In that example, and you could have, if they had maybe taken it with a with their phone, uploaded it to a a system somewhere uh, to to mark off your thing, and then next yeah. minute. 
that's stored on a database in the cloud somewhere and now it's available to an API query, yeah. which somehow gets exposed yeah. to the web, um, unfortunately. And now next minute your license is now out on the web you know, for sale on the dark web, you know, yeah. it's, it's sometimes it is better just to photocopy things and shred them. <laughs> well, and and, but I mean, it becomes part of that, um, you know, the that, um, risk and reward process, doesn't it? Let's talk about future predictions and AI. And I, I'll start with what I think is a future prediction and we can yeah. do some cutting, but, and then I'll let you comment um, on how, how much bullshit you think I'm talking. Um. <laughs> So my prediction, again, I think I'll go back to the point, is you'll go, hey, chat GPT, tell me um, about the situation of my business at the moment. What is, what's, you know, what's the short-term and long-term outlook? And then it's just going to spit out based on the data you, you have. So at the moment, I'll just rewind back a bit. So at the moment, chat GPT, these language models, they're all trained on big data sets. As you said, you need big, big amounts of data. And one of the quotes I saw just recently was that the difference between humans and AI is that humans can make decisions on a small amount of data and, and AI needs a lot of data. So if it doesn't have a lot of data, it's kind of useless yeah. where humans have, you know, Intuition? an emotional intelligence, there's, there's all these different things that come into play when humans make decisions about certain things, right? So AI is only always going to be a tool to solve a problem. So it becomes the human's decision then to work out what problems am I trying to solve? And then the AI can then work out whether or not those problems that the, the, the human is trying to solve are the real problems. All right. My general feeling about Tableau and all these BI platforms and to your point before, when you mentioned, does the average business owner become all of a sudden a, an analyst? I think, the role of an analyst, in my view, is is one of the a role where it becomes sort of the the gateway between a business wanting to solve the the, the right or ask the right questions to get you know to get then uh, the way to the truth. And that being, um, it may not come about as, as the first. It's like chat, chat GPT. You ask it a question, then you realize, oh no, I was actually trying to. It gives you the answer, and then you realize, oh shit. Um, it's it's, it's a bit like C3PO. Sorry, can you rephrase the question? You know, it's sort of like, it's still very much like, you know, it does, it's not going to pass the Turing test anytime soon, but like, you know, it's, it's sort of like it, it, the human becomes, no, actually what you're trying to ask the data set is this, and that becomes an analyst role where I think there'll be a big shift between data science and data analysts or analyzing data and then the end user. And I think AI is going to bridge that gap between the data scientists and the end user and make the person in the middle, so to speak, that um, the analyst more of a uh, kind of uh, proposition kind of analyst. It's like, you know, how do you describe to work out what you're trying to describe and then ask the AI and then it's going to start to evolve from that where you can pretty much ask it anything and it will start to refine down your question to a point where you start to you know, answer the questions you're trying or problems you're trying to solve. What are your thoughts about that, Ed? What do you think your, your sort of future predictions well, around um, data and, and AI? Look, first of all, and we know this, we've seen it through our lives so far. Anybody who does predictions always gets them wrong. Um, and... 
so genuinely I'm always like I've no idea what is going to happen in the future because you know I laugh when I see old clips on YouTube now of science programs for the 1970s you know mm -hmm. going oh and by the way by 1975 you'll all have flying cars and this is what they look like <laughs> you know? so I think seriously it's worth putting that caveat in there mm. look my view at the moment is this that <clears throat> more than what we would generally have termed the job data analyst the role we know it today mm. I think uh the the role of prompt engineer is going to be big, mm. right? Because it's all about, uh, or certainly in current iterations, you know, it's all about, well, how do you ask it? How, what way do you build the prompt? Mm -hmm. um, clearly, look, the human still has to be there for context because, you know, we've all got stories like this. You know, you say to it something like, um, you know, tell me how to get profitable within the next five years. And it says, okay, well, if you sack everyone in Queensland, you'll become profitable in, in one year. <laughs> yeah, it's all of a sudden, mm -hmm. like Elon Musk says, that humans become like the house cat. <laughs> 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 all of a sudden, all your, all your valuable people with who you love and, you, you know, are in your business and have made it what it is become the house cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... So, um, yeah, we know that, like, you know, you can you can ask it some things and then it can come back and it can come back with uh, something that is not illogical. You know, it makes sense. But in the real world, you go, yeah, but that's not a good thing for me to do. Right. So that's number one. Number two is you almost did it as a little throwaway phrase at the beginning. Mm. Our dear friend that we're talking about is the most important thing data so it's like where's the data what data is it looking at to yeah. answer the question this is 2023 and even in 2023 i still have no good universal search available to me where i can go hmm, now where is that powerpoint nigel sent me and you spend 15 minutes, go get a coffee, come back, grab a donut on the way. I mean, it's highly productive. Or did he call it data discovery PowerPoint? Yeah. I don't know. I think he might have called it Nigel. I'm going to look for Nigel. The point is you now, didn't even open it, so it doesn't really matter. Was it in, well, exactly. That's true. You just read the title of it. Yeah. So the AI, we should use the AI to actually rename documents so then they can, actually, there's a business right there. Yeah. Renaming documents. Like Google wants to rename your document the first thing you put on a spreadsheet or a or a, a, a doc, but it's not actually what you want to name it. <laughs> Us on this screen and everyone, I guarantee, is not in their heads and going, oh, God, yeah, look, I'm there, I'm with you, right? Because you're going, is it in a Teams channel? Did he send it to me in Outlook? Mm. <laughs> uh, maybe it's on SharePoint or something. Did he WhatsApp um, it to me? Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, oh, he could, I think it was on Slack. I think he slacked it to me, right? So the point is that even today in like minor bits of data, half the time we go, I've no idea where it mm. is. Mm. And then you, you open know? it and it's not even useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's if you it literally, literally yeah. is pictures of bus cats. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So there goes your morning. Now it's now it's time for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so now you can say, hey, AI, where should I have lunch? <laughs> <laughs> well, according to your urine sample this morning. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> Did anybody ever see that? The Japanese toilet that would analyze your urine and send it to your doctor? <laughs> That's a true story. That's technology. Yeah, yeah. But it uses AI to, to determine whether or not you're healthy or not. <laughs> Next, they'll have an ejector seat with a gillet, you know, with some sort of shredding machine to just get rid of the humans as, as they don't need them. Look, I'll, I'll, add, my, I'll add my three points. Uh, like, okay, mm. just closing out. Look, number one, I, I love what it's doing now. I, I love ChatGPT, Bard. It's amazing. Uh, I, I, I use, um, was it GitHub Copilot to do the editing yeah. and stuff like that? It's really mm. helpful. Yeah, that's number one. I use it every day. I use Grammarly Go, which is the new yeah. um, a little. Well, they had to, to reinvent their business model, I think, because they were well, using AI, their own AI, weren't mm. they? So but Grammarly so Go. Now it's, it's such a useful tool to make me mm. either sound intelligent, like it even asks you the tone that you want. I just, I just literally bash a paragraph of random shit in my emails before I send it, and I go Grammarly Go, fucking make it yeah, better. We know. Right. You know what is so funny? I think and he goes, hello, sir. You know, and I think my typing skills have gotten better, but my grammar and my, in actual fact, my, the ability to, to, you know, it's a bandwidth interface problem. You know, this neural lace thing that Elon Musk is doing, I think is going to be pretty amazing, but you type stuff out and, and then you look up and read what you've actually typed and it's actually not. It hasn't got anything to do with what you were thinking about. I mean, what is it? There's a brain to keyboard user interface problem here. Yeah, <laughs> Grammarly Go is going to fix all of that. A wonderful vision of what's coming out, but then you end up with like a wish.com email. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times I've typed things on LinkedIn and then I go back and read them again. I thought, how the f can I sound so stupid? <laughs> it was so what profound. What I had in my time. head was amazing and now it's just yeah. this garbage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, like I mean, yeah. for what it's worth, then now it's it's such a wonderful tool to help me with my everyday life, and yeah, I, you know, encourage it. But the that's the thing that a lot of people are tinfoil hat brigade are, are saying, and 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 rightly so. And I'm working on a there's specifically a generative AI policy that we're going to review. I got to review is like okay, learning models are great, but where does your data go? Like this is probably more Ed's realm. Like what, if I type in a question like you know, this is my company and uh, this is the, uh, well, first of all, let me preface this. Is anybody else really polite to the AI? Do you start with please? Oh, or do you just go, fuck, and just write me a pen of code? And I started off please. being so polite. It's a bit like Siri. I started off being so, oh, thank you, Siri, for that. Oh, thank you. Um, excuse me, Siri, can I ask you a question? And my kids were doing the same. Next minute, hey, Siri, what's the weather? Oh, that's shit. It's raining. <laughs> you know? Oh, you can do better than that, Siri. I want a sunny day. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I digress. It's like, where does it, uh, where do you, because I know with Copilot, I've been looking at specifically, it says, do you want to use code from the, the, the wealth of knowledge, like the breadth of knowledge and, yeah. um, or not, right? So mm. that stops you from accidentally pulling in some malicious line of code that you shouldn't have put in your thing, right? Mm. How does that work? Uh, I, I don't know the answer, but I'm just asking, like, when you're typing shit, is it learning already or... How, how does it, does you, what you type go into the pool? Yes. Well, it would do. And it would use things like latent semantic indexing to know what your next most likely word is that you're going to type. Hmm. 
and then from so, there it would start to predict what you your tone and what you what it thinks essentially is, is a, the right next right thing is um, it a concern but that's where the machine learning models come in and that's why chat gpt has the thumbs up and down because it's they've actually said that gpt4 is actually dumber than what it was when it was first released all of a sudden and i just laughed and i thought that's because there's so many stupid humans using it <laughs> that's, all, that's right you, you get your toys taken like, away I, from I, you i can't see uh mishukaku or, or like um you know these theoretical physicists sitting there talking and, uh, and using chat pt chat gpt to answer their the theory of everything right <laughs> it's just dumb people like us using chat gpt <laughs> people can't exactly bring bring the keyboard into the app um I think it's and a it's some a positive. Of it, some of it is just unknown, right? Mm. Like because and that's what it is worrying people. That's what sets people off because, you know, more and more people are understanding that the, the, neural networks. You know, even, the, scientists. You know, the super technical people themselves don't know, like how or why it came up with the output. You know, in the old days, you simply tracked back code. Yeah, now that's what I was going to say. Exactly, percent. You're spot on, Ed. Right? Like you would, you would, you'd go back and reverse engineer it. But I don't understand when, when the people who, you know, Sarah Connor, famous quote, thought it up, right? Yeah. Terminator. You know, <laughs> they th at this point, it kind of to the average person, they're going, well, if this is your idea. You mean you you don't know what it's doing anymore? That that freaks the hell out of people. Yeah. It freaks them out. Like, what, what you mean? Truth. You don't know how it works anymore? It's just they doing don't what know it does. Why or how it's, hmm. you know, coming out of the other end of the neural network. Um, and obviously, uh, you've heard me before say about retraining. I'm working with uh, a lot of AI algorithms at the moment for. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> While he scratches his forehead and like he's got a gigantic <laughs> headache. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I'm just, I'm thinking to myself. We're, we're trying to do uh, 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 image recognition. And again, you go... Well, oh, ask Elon Musk all about that. that. Self-driving. Yeah, and yeah. it's not. It's a nightmare. It's oh, really, really hard. Yeah, like a stop sign could look like a giant tomato on, on top of a pole. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. It's amazing yeah. how far they've come, but it's, it, it is... Um, it's ex extremely difficult. Like... Mm you like the whole in, there's no intuition with it right yeah. there's no equivalent of intuition which is what we have as the intuition is the big thing isn't it yeah mm. they're talking about hallucinations like it will just start to make up what it thinks it it, it the, the 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 thing that it's looking at is yeah. and that's actually even more dangerous than saying it doesn't know correct because it yeah. thinks so it's it's basically it's it's that concept of you tell a lie often enough and you start to believe your own lie yeah. And it's the same thing with hallucinations. If it sees, so the next time it sees that, you know, stop sign, which is, you know, um, it says it's a tomato sitting on top of a pole, giant yeah. tomato sitting on top of a pole, it's going to believe it next time it sees it, right? It, and well, yeah. The reason why the buttons are there on chat GPT and, you know, the comment section is because uh, we're back what we were talking about we're helping to train it mm, and so right. when chat gpt has a hallucination you know we're meant to do the thumbs down and then write in the bottom you know this isn't true you know a tree doesn't have six legs yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's, that's right that I, I wonder how many people actually do that 
versus accept it because there has to be a, a measurement there of uh, uh, statistical significance, as they call it, before at some point it says, okay, well, that's no longer, uh, uh, you know, a, a tree with legs or yeah. whatever, whatever yeah. it might be, you know. It, yeah. it, it, so if people aren't doing that enough, they have to, they would have to somehow, and I'm sure there's people a lot smarter than, than us here <laughs> doing this, but, you know, the thumbs down and the correction must weigh a lot more in a scorecard than, than you know, than anything to, to retrain that model because, you know, you'd have to think one in, 200 or one in 20 maybe might actually put a thumbs down to a hallucination or, or and actually know what it's actually doing people just take the answer and and go oh okay start a new chat and then Correct. ask yeah. the question again no, no, you're absolutely mm. right yeah so but again in these things we'll we'll take training from anyone right you know mm. like my biggest problem at the moment is i can't find enough images to train one of these models and again, in this modern world, you'd kind of go, God, that's impossible, isn't it? But, but does anybody know <laughs> what quantum entanglement is? Yeah. yeah quantum entanglement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so basically, right, they've, they've demonstrated this with photons. So basically, you get two particles or whatever, right? That are entangled, yep. And you entangle them, mm -hmm. and they're spinning the same way, and you take them anywhere in the universe, yep. stop, you change the direction of the other one, the other one changes as well, anywhere in the Correct. universe. Yeah. The fuck does that work? I uh, don't think anybody knows. That's I think they, they think it know, the they know. When you started, I was like, oh, God, here we go. Because <laughs> you're talking about, like, yeah. you know, neural, um, you know, neural network. That, work? <laughs> <laughs> that could be podcast number five, but I need I beers as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need some beers for that one, and we might, we might do that one. But, you know, it, that's how quantum computing works, and that's why it has to be almost at absolute zero, because... Anything, any vibrations or any kind of interference with the entanglement can cause them to become un untangled, and the the com the compute gets dropped. <laughs> uh, I'm just throwing out quantum entanglement uh, buzzwords now, dude. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'll buy one. <laughs> just buy yourself one of those D-Wave machines. They're, they're, they're pretty amazing, apparently. Uh, all right, look. All right, well, um, let's um, let's wrap it up here. I think it's um, it's been uh, awesome having you on the show, Ed, and um, and Ende again. Thanks very much for um, joining us. I think um, we've got a lot more to talk about, actually. I think uh, if you've got some time in the future, I'd love to have you back on, Ed. I think it's, it's, been, a, it's been a great podcast. And thanks for joining us again, Ende. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right, guys. Yeah, good to see you, Ende. Thanks, Nigel. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers.